afternoon. Well, let's bow before we open up God's Word. Let's pray. Father, now we're going to um, transition over to some heavy stuff. I pray that you'll help us to see just how important your gospel is, but more than that, how we are in desperate need of your grace to fill our hearts, that we are in a dangerous world, living in a dangerous time, and um, just as that song said, we need to live by faith and not by sight. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Take your Bibles and open up to Galatians chapter 4. Today we're going to look at verses 8 through 20. Here's my theme today. My theme is very simple and it is this. If Satan can't stop a person from receiving Christ, if he can't stop you from accepting his Son, he will often push a person over to the dark side. I'll say that again. If Satan can't stop a person from receiving Christ, he will often, after they receive Christ, push them way far over to the dark side. The question is, what is the dark side? The dark side is a state of bondage. Slavery. Slavery, guilt, persistent defeat, driven by demands of an oppressive religious system. That's what the dark side is. It's bondage that causes you to lose joy and really not be a testimony for Christ at all. So if Satan can't stop you from receiving Christ, he'll push you way over to the dark side. Satan and his minions know that legalism kills. It kills. It took me a good 15 years to really understand this. While some of my family attended grace-centered churches, a large number of my family also attended what I would say heavy-handed fundamental churches, fundamentalist churches. To me, as a new believer, they seemed like two equally good choices. As a young Christian, honestly, I was quite impressed by the passion of the legalists and the tie-wearing fundamentalists. I really was. I would think to myself, here's what I'd say. Wow, they seem so godly because they go to church so much. Or here was another thought I really had. You might think I'm mean for this, but I really, this is how I thought. I, I really thought they must really love Jesus because they sing all those old crusty hymns like they really like them. And I'm not talking about the older people. I'm talking about 12 and 13 year old nieces and nephews. Wow, they really like them. And over time though, as I matured and grew to, to learn what it meant to walk with Jesus by faith, my eyes were open to the bondage that legalism really does put people underneath. I saw the negative effects specifically on the second generation of kids raised in it. There was a lack of joy. There was this heaviness that they always carried around, this guilt. If they didn't do something exactly right, they were somehow in trouble. It was oppressive. And actually, do you know when a kid grows up like that, when they finally are on their own, they often leave. So as I grew up, I started realizing that this is not an issue of two equally good choices. Grace becomes a matter of life and death. A matter of freedom versus bondage. It really does. If you were here last week, you, you got to hear a masterful job by Pastor Ken to talk about legalism 
license and all of that stuff. If you weren't, you need to go back and listen to a sermon last week. I need to review it real quickly. Kind of, It will set up for this week beautifully. He said there's two sides. Normally people view two sides of Christianity. There's the side of license, which means I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it. it it's called antinomianism. Anti, against law, no meal. Non-law, no law at all. I mean, it's the side of cheap grace. I, just Grace allows me to just be a fool. And even uh, it's driven by your flesh. On the other side, you have the law. In this case, Galatians, we're talking about Mosaic law, but that could be anything, any kind of tradition, standards, customs. We call that legalism. It's, I do what I am told to do because the preacher up here told me to do it, I got to do her. It's that kind of attitude. Some uh, quarters of our community are called fundamentalists. There's a good sign to fundamentalism, but there's an oppressive side to it as well. It's also very pride-driven. I do these things. I do these things. It's pride. And so what, what Ken said is the normal way to view this, if you had license on this side and law on this side, and in comes grace, which balances it out. And he said that's not the way it is. And so he brought up this next idea. He said, really, we are to grow up. And he said, yeah, baby stage, adolescent stage, and adult stage. And last week he said the baby stage is license. You're a baby when you think you can just do whatever you want to do. I can go touch the burner in the stove. That's a baby mentality. And then he said adolescence is the law where I do what I'm told to do. And if I do it, mom and dad will shut up and then I can go be myself. And he said that's really not what we're supposed to be. He said we're supposed to be mature adults, and that's where grace is. So what Ken said last week, grace isn't the balancer. Grace is the ultimate goal. He kept asking this last week. He said, is it okay to stay immature, to be perpetually adolescent? Is it okay? And as I was listening to it, I was listening to it, I tried to listen to it from the eyes of our culture. And you know what our culture would say? Why not? Doesn't it seem like our culture is more, I would say, enthralled or they're more attracted to the youth movement than they are about being adults? Everybody is. Even 60, 70-year-old people. Mick Jagger is still in concert. It's cool. Coolness is how you judge if something is cool, is great. Let me give you a, just a perfect example of what I'm trying to come across. Let's just talk about Bruce Jenner for a second. He just won the ESPY Awards. Sometimes people call him Caitlin. It's, he's Bruce Jenner. Anyhow. His coming out to me and in his confusion about whether he's a man or a woman is not what troubles me. As much as, honestly, how the trivial and how the frivolous has become so important to him and accepted by our culture. Let me give you an example. When he was being interviewed by Diane Sawyer, one of the number one things he said is this. He said, I am so excited about my new self because I can finally try on the new shades of fingernail polish and wear the fancy dresses I always wanted to. Even his stepdaughter, Kim Kardashian, who arguably does not know what it means to be an adult. I'll, yeah, I'll leave that aside. But here's her advice. For Bruce or Caitlin, here's her advice. If you're going to do it, girl, you got to rock it if you're going to do this thing. Here's what's, here's what's been lost in this whole discussion. And here's what's lost in our whole culture. 
adult gravitas and responsibility and nobility. Aren't adults supposed to example for the young how to be noble, dignified, honorable? Our culture is no longer concerned with building virtue and promoting human nobility. We just want to have fun. That's all we want. We just want to have fun. We want our hamburger our way. But instead of the Burger King commercial singing, hold the pickles and hold the lettuce, special orders, don't upset us, now we sing it like this. Hold the adult responsibility. Hold the self-sacrifice. Hold my DNA. Hold my unwanted baby. Hold everything I don't like. Because all I ask is that God will let me have it my way. We are adolescents. So when he asks this, don't you want to grow up? People don't. Even in the church. Spiritual realm, adolescents just want religion to be easy. Just tell me what to do. I don't want to learn. I don't want to grow. I don't want to self-sacrifice. I don't want to wait. Just give me the minimum requirement to make God happy. I'll do it, and then he'll be off my back. What's so wrong with that? Today we're going to see what's wrong with that is it's not just about being immature. When it comes to legalism, when it comes to walking with God, there's also a dark side. A real dark side. And that's what we're going to talk about, starting in verse 8. Let's, let's just read, and then we'll work through this. I'll read the first part. So we're just going to read verses 8 through 11. Paul begins and he says, Formerly, and he's talking to the Galatians, the Gentiles. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves in bondage and chains to those who, by nature, are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? I like how the King James says it, beggarly elements, as if it's ridiculous. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. This isn't just about immaturity. What he's talking about is I have wasted my time with you if you continue down a road you're going. And what is that road? Slavery. Let's figure out what he's saying. Let's begin in verse 8. He begins by talking about their former way of life before they came to Christ. Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. He is referring to their pre-salvation days. Before Jesus and the Gospel came to the, the Galatians, they were lost. They were living in ignorance under strange and dark pagan religions. You can read it in Acts 14 when Paul and Barnabas come. The people in Galatian region, Lystra and Derby, they start praising them as Zeus and Hermes, these Greek gods, these pagan gods. They followed the Greco-Roman cults at that time, which believed in myths, strange legends, and they were loaded with what I'd call secret mystical rites and ceremonies. Paul says in here, remember how you lived under those who were not gods? What does he mean? 
The gods that you worshipped, another version says, were no gods at all. Who are the gods that they worship? What, what does it mean? Almost every scholar I've read on this point agrees that in paganism, behind the scene is a dark force. In paganism is an authority that controls the people going through the ceremony, going to the temple, doing this mystical rite. There's a darkness behind it. And what is that darkness? It's based on three things. It's demonic, and the demon's objective is to deceive, and the purpose of deception is to pull people away from the head of the body that's Christ. I'll prove this to you. First of all, when it comes to the demonic, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 4-6. First Corinthians 8, 4 to 6. He's talking about eating food sacrificed to the idols, to these pagan religions. And he says, So then, about eating food, this is verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 8. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. He's saying there's really only one real God. It's kind of like what he said in Galatians. The gods that you worship are no gods at all. What he means is there's only one God. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's but one God. So then go to 1 Corinthians 10, and he's going to talk about these so-called gods. Chapter 10, 19-20. He's dealing with the same issue. Meat sacrificed to idols. And in verse 19... He says, do I mean then that a sacrifice to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. So he's saying what's behind food sacrifice to idols, what's behind false religion, and I believe any false religion, that's why when we say all religions are the same, it's as if this is a neutral statement. No, there's dark forces behind false religions. Demons. What are demons? Fallen angels. And they're brilliant. They're intelligent. And they're smart. If you don't believe me, this goes to the next part. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4. This is the goal. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times, which we're in, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. They're teachers. They're intelligent. Remember what I said? If they can't stop you from faith, they will push you to the dark side. That's what this is saying. It even goes on, and if you go to 2 Timothy Chapter 2, it's talking about people who are out of the will of God. In chapter 2, verse 25, he's talking about the servant of God must try to lead them back to repentance, lead them back to where they left. In verse 25, he says, To those who oppose him, that's the teacher, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken him captive to do his will. That's the objective of demons. They are liars, they lie to you, and they want to trap you to do his bidding, his will. 
And the purpose is, you can, you can read this on your own, Colossians 2.19, to pull you away from the head of the body. That's Christ. They get you doing all of these principles. Pastor Ken talked about it last week. Elementary principles. And those things disconnect you from Christ. So my whole point is this. Demons are real. And religion isn't something to mess around with. And that's even true in Christianity. We go back to Galatians, let's continue on. So verse 8 says, Formerly when you did not know God, that's when they were pagans, you were slave to demons. That's how you can interpret that verse. That takes us to verse 9, which talks about, at the time, the current conditions of the Galatians. But now that you are known, that you know God, or rather known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserably, miserable principles? Paul says that the chains of slavery that they were in before they knew Christ were broken down by God himself. He had to reveal himself to the Galatians. They, the Galatians, and we are saved. Not because we go looking for God. There's this whole idea that we can have seeker services. Everybody out there is looking for God. That's not true. The reason people get saved is because God goes looking for them. That's what this means in verse 9. But not that you know God, or rather known by God. First you need to be known by God in order to know God. He's got to break in. Because demons have you enslaved. If you don't believe that, just listen to Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5. Listen to it. It's very clear. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Who is the ruler of the kingdom of the air? Satan. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we are by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even while we were dead. So we are dead and Christ made us alive. He broke in. He saved us. He rescued us. So up to this point, if we go to Galatians 9, here's what Paul is saying. When it comes to the Galatians, Satan and his demons were losing territory because Jesus Christ broke in and made them their sons and daughters. They lost some territorial authority and dominance because God broke in. But remember what I said at the start of my message. If Satan can't stop a person from receiving Christ, he will push them over to the dark side. And that's exactly what Paul's going to start pointing out here. Listen to his frustration at the end of verse 9. But now you know God, or rather known by God. How is it that you are turning back? You are turning back. Why? He's frustrated. He's saying you are turning back to those things that, you, that put you in bondage in the first place. These principles. You gained freedom in Christ, and now you're heading back to that bondage? How could you? But he's not talking about paganism, and this is where I need you to think. What is he talking about as putting them back in bondage? This is bizarre. 
If you are ready to study this morning, this is bizarre. Read verse 9 and 10. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. This is very perplexing, especially to scholars. Because here's what Paul's saying. He is saying this. Go to the next slide. He is saying paganism in the mind of Paul is being equated to the Mosaic Law. He is comparing demonically inspired systems of religion to something God gave. They're nothing alike. How can he equate the holy law of God, which Romans 7 says is good, to pagan idolatry? This is very confusing. Listen to how one writer answers this. Yes, the Mosaic law was good. But when Christianity came, it appropriated all that was spiritual in Judaism. That means when Christianity came, it was the fulfillment of what Judaism was leading to. And it took all that was spiritual and brought it to Christianity. The Mosaic law foreshadowed Christ. It contained the germ of the gospel. And then when Christ came... Judaism's special element was extinguished, or rather absorbed, by Christianity. Deprived of this, the Mosaic system became a mere mass of lifeless ordinance, differing only in degree, not in kind, from any other ritualistic system. That very, sounds very complicated, like some very smart scholar. Here's what he's saying. Both paganism and Judaism are alike in the sense that they are elementary systems intended to lead someone to maturity, seeking your life only in Christ. That's the point of them. That's why they're similar. Once Jesus is found, these systems become obsolete. Once Jesus is found, these systems are done doing what they're supposed to do. And if you try to hold on to them, they morph into something extremely dangerous and dark a dictatorship of rules, rituals, traditions, and customs that offer a false life. And I'm telling you, this is true also with certain kinds of Christianity as well. Legalistic forms. You could say this, often legalistic systems are commandeered sometimes by Satan and his demons to keep people in bondage. Look at verse 10. Here's what he said to Galatians. Remember, they were pagans. They didn't know anything about Judaism. They came to Christ. The Jews came in, and these Galatians started observing special days, months, seasons, and years. What's that with regards to? The Sabbath. Specifically, if you read Numbers 29, the Jews had different months. And in Numbers 29, it said the seventh month of Tishri on the Jewish calendar had nine specific days they were to, they were to observe Sabbath rules in one month. Nine days they're supposed to observe Sabbath rules. What does that mean? In Jewish context, if you did any work on the Sabbath, you were to die. That's why it's ridiculous when people say the church needs to obey the Sabbath. Do you understand what you're talking about? First of all, it's not the same day. And secondly, there are 39 forbidden activities that you are not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And if you do, really, you should die. What are they? Sowing, plowing, reaping, Binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing wool. Do you ever run the dryer or washer on the Sabbath? 
Beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads. You ever just mend a rip on Sunday? You're not allowed to. You should die. Making, uh, making stitches, tearing, trapping, slaughtering animals, flaying, tanning those animals, scrapping hide, marking hides, cutting hide to shape, writing two or more letters. You ever write two or more emails on a Sunday? It's the same thing. It's just electronic. Erasing two or more letters. Building, demolishing, extinguishing a fire. Did you ever go camping on a Sunday and extinguish the fire in the morning? Building, kindling a fire, putting the finishing touches on an object. Transporting an object between private and public domain at a minimal distance of even two meters. Peter in Acts 15.10 was so upset by trying to have the Gentiles carry this burden that he said you are putting on the next of the disciples a yoke that we either need we nor our fathers have been able to bear they were only intended to point to christ finding our rest in him he's our sabbath i want you to look at it like this i if you read my blog you know what i mean but i want you to look at it like this i'll make it simple because you're probably this is so confusing but it shouldn't be but it's hard because it's it goes at our very soul I want you to see this. This is called the claw. Do you ever go play the claw with your kids? You put in a money, get this claw that goes over, goes down, gets the prize, picks it up, goes over and drops it off. Bink. I'm terrible at the claw. I put so much money in that over time, I can't tell you. Well, this vacation, they had one where we were camping, and it was an easy one. We'd go to the arcade, and kids would be winning prizes all the time, and I'm like, finally, I can win it. I can prove to my kids that I am good at this stupid game. So I ran back to my tent to get some, or back to our campsite to get all kind of quarters, put them in my pocket, came back. When I came back, there were no more prizes. Great. I was talking to the guy. I said, when are you going to get prizes? Oh, I'll come back in a couple hours, which in camp language means in probably three weeks we'll get more prizes. So I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I can beat this machine. What would you think if I put a quarter in and started playing it? Put it down, and but there's nothing in there. Yeah, but I'm good at this game. I've been working on it for years. There's nothing in there. I'm not, I'm not winning anything. Going through religious motions, the intent of it was to grab Christ, the prize. Once I have the prize, why play the game? Why play the game? Once you secure Christ, the game's over. Every religion, including a ritualistic Christianity, becomes an empty shell if you forget that the end game is a relationship with Jesus. If you forget that, you're playing a game without a prize. It's really foolish. That's why Paul says, I'm wasting my time on you. People will sometimes feel compelled to come to church to light candles, to kneel to icons and images and statues made by men, or Follow holy days as if they are gaining favor with God. And none of this stuff brings real life. What Paul wants you to be connected to is real life. Faith connects you to real life. It actually enters into you and grows you up and matures you. But when you go through rituals, you aren't connecting to anything. You are playing a game with no prize. Jesus meant to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Not in paganistic rituals. Not in robes, not by wearing special clothes, 
not by singing a select group of songs which has been sanctioned as holy, not by chance, I can hear God saying, why don't you talk to me in your own language? What if I'm sitting at the table and my kid's addressing me, hey, Dad, what are you doing? Talk to me like I'm real. I'm a real person. Not by, not by mysterious experiences, searching for the ecstatic and the sublime, following a set of prescribed rules never makes you a better person. Paul says this is dark thinking. Listen to him in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Once you have Christ, you don't need anything else, really. Jesus is a person, not a system. You connect with him through his word by faith. You meet with him in prayer and obedience to his promises. He is not a mysterious apparition. He's not somebody you see in the sky floating. He's not a genie that you conjure by a special spell, magic trip, emotional experience. Oh, Jesus. Say his name like that. Jesus. That, that's, that doesn't work. He's real. He's a person who wants to have a relationship with you. So really what Paul's going to do then is he's going to then go through, he's going to say, the question is then, how do you know? How do you know when you're in bondage to the dark side? How do you know if you're in bondage? And he's going to really point out three things that was happening to the Galatians. Because they left their purity in Christ and they went to legalism, three things happened to them. They morphed. The first one, and this is how you can know if you're morphing, your original love and joy when you first know Christ or right before you know Christ is gone. Listen to verse 12 and 14. He says, I plead with you, brothers. Become like me, for I became like you. What he's saying is I was a Jew, but I became like you for your, for your sake. I didn't need to hang on to my Judaism. You've done me no wrong. Verse 13, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What happened to all your joy? When Paul first arrived in Galatia, this area that was around Turkey, it was not because he intended to stay there, but he was forced to stay there. He came down with a terrible illness, an affliction to his eyes. Scholars believe it was disease known as ophthalmalia. To me, you can think of it as an extreme form of conjunctivitis. Have you ever seen conjunctivitis? It's kind of a gross, when your kid's eye is stuck shut because he's got all kind of pus around it. But this is an extreme form. Actually, at that time, there was known to be an oriental strain of it where people completely lost their eyesight. A couple Greek senators did, or Roman senators did. But when Paul showed up to the Galatians' doorstep, instead of showing him disgust, see in verse 14 where it says, even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. And that word contempt is this Greek word is eptuo, like you didn't, want, you didn't spit me out. Yuck, yuck, gross. They didn't send him packing. They, they welcomed him with open arms as a messenger sent from God. But after the Galatians came to Christ, began buying into legalism, they started losing their joy. Verse 15, what happened to all your joy? 
I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become an enemy by telling you the truth? When they first came to know Christ, they would have done anything for Paul. But after they started getting sophisticated, learning laws, and adopting necessary practices for holiness, they started losing compassion, empathy, and love for others. Because they were obsessing about themselves, Have you ever noticed that sometimes people outside the church and new believers seem to have way more grace for the afflicted and broken people of this world than the average churchgoer does? It's funny, sometimes somebody can go to church for so long that they forget that there are lost people. And instead of loving and having compassion on a broken world, they start comparing each other, who's a better saint? I'm the best. That's a sign of legalism. You're comparing by outside standards. Have you ever been around Christians who have nothing but contempt for the lostness of humanity? Instead of having pity or trying to meet their needs, a legalistic church can only condemn. They stand with arms folded and eyes looking down on the failures of people around them. What a bunch of sinners. An extreme form of this are people from Westboro Baptist. I'm sure you've heard of that. They claim to be Christians and some of their signs actually say God hates fags Pray for more dead soldiers. That's sick. That's a sickness. We should be the first people to reach out to the homosexual. We should. We should be the ones that actually have pity for the transgendered. The homeless, the addict, the single mom, the depressed, and the drowned trodden. They should be attracted to our message. Just think, Jesus allowed a prostitute to wash his feet with her tears. Not because he approved of her adultery. That's not the reason. That's not why we, we, we try to reach out to a lost world, to embrace their sin. But we reach out because Jesus was their only hope. He's the only answer. We will only gain a voice with the lost if they know we are not just agents of condemnation. Secondly, how do you know you're in the dark side? Discipleship starts becoming like war. Listen to verse 15 and 16 and 17. He said, what happened to all your joy? You would have torn out your eyes from me. Then in verse 16, he says, how I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? He's become their enemy? Verse 17, these people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. Here's what he's saying. They're forming teams. Legalists love to form teams. They group up and compare, believing deep in their heart that their group is just better at following Jesus, more pleasing to God than all those other backsliding groups out there. We do it the best. I have actually seen people leave church and join another, not because of doctrine, not because of theology, but because they want to prove they're more holy, more obedient than a church of what they would call weak-willed, worldly backsliders. When you stop following Jesus in order to follow rules, you start competing and comparing. You just do. If you find yourself comparing with other believers and saying, I'm just a better follower, ooh, that's dangerous. The law can only judge by externals, and people who don't fit with those externals will feel condemned. Is Kent City Baptist better than other churches? 
I know that's not a politically correct question, but I, just as I asked it, you probably are trying to answer it. But the answer is, if we were honest, the truth is everybody needs Jesus. Everybody. Nobody is ever, they've never arrived. Nobody's ever arrived because we only compare with him and his holiness. And we fail. Really, Kent City Baptist is a failure. If that's what we're going to do is compare. We, we aren't better than churches down the road. We're all trying to glorify Christ. That's our goal. And then the third thing, the way you can tell you are, you're in the dark side is there's what I would call fabricated zeal. Listen to verse 17 and 18. He said, those people are zealous. That means bubbling over with passion and enthusiasm to win you over. But why? For no good. So they're excited, but for no reason, no good, actually to alienate. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you can be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always not just with you where I am. What he's saying is these leaders, these Judaizers, they go from house to house. They want to teach. They want to get excited so they can win them over and alienate and say, see, now that you're following me, we're so much better than those people. And look at how excited and passionate and knowledgeable we are. Have you ever been to churches where I've been to some, like I'd go to some churches and man, they get mad at the congregation if they don't sing it loud enough. It's as if we're at a pep rally or we are a army military parade. Come on, onward Christian. Like they're mad singing it. What are you mad about? We're going to prove to the world we're better. That's not, is that Christianity? Eugene Peterson says this, Propagandists are abroad in the land, lying to us about what congregations are and can be. They want to make us discontent with what we are doing, so we will buy a solution from them that they promise will restore virility to our impotent congregations. We hear tales of glitzy, enthusiastic churches and wonder what in the world are we doing wrong that our people don't turn out that way under our preaching. He finishes with a brilliant, blunt statement. He says, on close examination, it turns out that there are no wonderful congregations. Hang around long enough, and sure enough, there are gossips who won't shut up, furnaces that will malfunction, sermons that misfire, disciples who quit, choirs that go flat, and worse. Every congregation is a congregation of sinners, as if that wasn't bad enough. They all have sinners for pastors. And here's what he's saying, is we aren't in competition. We aren't better because we sing louder. We really aren't better because we have more VBS kids. All we're trying to do is promote a gospel that saves broken people. I want to illustrate one more thing. This is in conclusion. I want you to go to Mark chapter 3. And this illustrates the dark side very vividly. And as I read this, I want you to ask yourself, who really is sick in this story? Who really is sick? This is Mark 3. Go to the next slide. Mark 3, 1 through 9. Another time, Jesus went into a synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. So a man had a shriveled hand. It was 
probably, it couldn't move, it was maybe smaller. It just wasn't right. Some of them, meaning Pharisees, leaders, religious rulers, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Why were they silent? Because they didn't care about that question. They didn't really care about bringing life and goodness and wholeness to people. They didn't care about the gospel that sets people free. Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed. Most scholars say this is the most angry he ever was. He looks around at, here's a man with a shriveled hand, and they don't care, and he's mad. What was he mad at? Their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And here's the saddest part. The Pharisees went out and began to plot to the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. What is the point of Judaism? To welcome the Messiah. The Messiah was in their very midst and they didn't even see him because all they cared about was their law. What is Christianity about? To worship Christ. And a lot of people don't even recognize him because all people care about is how people dress, what kind of music is being played, whether people are doing the right things, acting the right way, and they miss Christ altogether. Here's my final statement. Here's the whole point of legalism. Go to the next slide. The devil wins when he can divide and conquer. If he can't stop you from being saved, he will cause you to hate one another by applying the law to judge and compare. Jesus said they will know you are Christians by your love, not by your obedience to tradition, customs, rules. Because to me, it's like playing the claw without a prize. And I think the devil's running the controls. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your, uh, I pray for your spirit to confirm what has been true in the hearts of us. I pray also that your spirit would help us to discern those things that are um, false, wrong. But God, my intent is one thing, and that's to exalt the life of Christ. That connection to Him by faith is all that matters, and that our goal is to, to really connect with Him. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for everything He is and He's done for us. And we love You, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.